Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa today for details. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 69, Kim Newman Part 2. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. So hello to Oral Delights. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. And you will guess we are now being sponsored again by Audible, which is very nice indeed. So we are supporting our good friends over at Audible.com. And I have got a fantastic book recommendation for you coming up later on as well. It is cracking. So let's just give you a little heads up what's happened today. Today is a bit of a Watchman movie special. Yes. You know, it's one of those classic books that have, you know, it won the Hugo. And I, th- I just thought, you know, it's it's out there now. I put a little shout out again on Twitter and I asked a couple of people if they would just send in like a five minute, you know, just a little five minute review. So we've got four little reviews just to kind of give you the feel of Watchmen, make your own mind up. Because I've been listening to a couple of reviews on the television and they've all been sort of like negative. And I was thinking, do I need to go and see this film or not? So what better the people to ask than ourselves? First off, we've got an editorial by myself entitled Friendship, How It Evolves. Next, we have a little bit of a movie talk with our very own Rob Barnett. Rob jumps in straight away with his little review of Watchmen. Poetry today comes from Anke Schwerer. Next up will be another little movie talk special on The Watchmen by Jeremiah Talbot. Jeremiah Talbot, if anyone's out there, is now the new editor over at Escape Pod. Flash Fiction today comes from Morgan Sterling. A little cheeky little number called Explorers, with a capital X. Fact article is our good friend, Amy H. Sturgis. Main fiction is part two of The Serial Murders by Kim Newman, and it is just, like, fantastically narrated by Gareth Stack. Gareth, thank you so much. We have another movie talk special by our good friend, Matthew Sanborn-Smith. You know, a true fan of Watchmen. Will he like it? Will he not? So it's nice to find out. Next up is the new titles. A lot of new titles kicking around at the moment. I will delve into some of them that has came through my door. The final Watchmen review comes from Scott Grandison. Scott is one half of Comic Book Outsiders, a podcast over there all to do with comic books and everything like that. I will tell you a little bit of good news, hopefully, with Scott and Steve involving the Starship Sofa. So come on, I don't think you can get better than that. A fantastic Watchmen special. So first off, I think we'll dip into the editorial. I've been mulling around this week trying to think of, not trying to think of, 
an editorial, more just how I can kind of really approach it. And I came to the conclusion, you know, it's to do with friendship. And, you know, I've been harping on about Twitter and everything like that, you know, and friends, this community is of friends. And it's strange because I'd seem to be getting like a load of nice friends, you know, in this community. And it's just amazing. But in the real world, my, you know, like real flesh and blood friends, I seem to be now we're getting scattered to the four corners of the earth, you know what I mean? And it's quite strange how you just, your life and your, your, your values change and things change and you move away and then, you, you know, you change your friends in a way and you get new friends. And like I say, I can remember, you know, and I'm seeing it a lot in my children. When they go to school reading Ellie, you know, it's like the school friends, that the bond is so strong, you know what I mean? And they read with his friends, it's all like... You know, they're in this, like, when they're playing, it's like this make-believe world, and they're there with their friends, and they're fighting the bad men, you know, and it's just, like, amazing to watch, you know, and then you see, like, my daughter, how they're just kind of going in now into the kind of teenage, the 13-year-old age bracket, and everything, you know, they're sharing all these, like, emotions that are going on with, you know, like, girls growing up and getting, you know, maturing. And there's a bond there, you know, they're kind of sharing that friendship. And then, you know, it's like myself, you know, you, you, you get older and you, you, your friends from school. It's, it's, it's so strange that when you're a child, think, you know, you're, a lot of your friends, you might lose and, you know, you get new friends. And it's hard to kind of put that together and think about that. But, you know, time creeps on and you, you start a job. And as soon as you really leave school, that's like a kind of cutoff point. And a lot of your friends do you know, disappear into the kind of the, the woodwork and, you know, you don't see them often and you don't see them as much. You still have, your, you know, some you know, true friends. If you're lucky enough, you, you have them and it right through your life. That is just worth everything to a human being, I think, to have like a, a friendship that has just lasted so long. You know, and you get this, like a new friendship comes along and you, you meet new people, you know, you go out, you start drinking and you start clubbing and, you know, friendship evolves from there. And then you get friends from work and, you know... All of a sudden, though, even that kind of little group, you know, you, you, you meet someone and your friends you go out with every week now are kind of slowly ebbing by and you're now going out with couples and there's, there's new friends. You're getting new friends and you're, you're single friends, you know. Some of them are maybe falling by the wayside. And I don't mean that kind of nastily. You just, you do, you just, you, you evolve. You have different interests now. You know, you, you now want to go out with your partner and you want to have drinks with other friends who's got partners and you know, and these single nights clubbing and dancing and everything, they slowly kind of filter out into the, you know, other, other world. And it's like you, you grew up with friends now and you've got your friends, you know, you, you're couples and you just go out like that. And then along come children and some of your friends that are still going out, you know, you go together, they haven't got children. And all of a sudden that little kind of friendship bubble sort of like bursts and, now, you know, your friends are still going out by themselves in couples and you're staying in because you've got children. And, you know, it's an, it's, it seems to be like an almost like an ongoing process. And it's at the moment where I am, it's like I say before, my real world friends are just now, you know, especially this week, are scattered to the ends of the earth. I don't know if many remember, I, I go out like a lot of times with a friend called Darren and this is where we all go you know, as, as families, two families, we go on holiday together and everything like that. And we went to Italy last year, and I go and see a lot of bands with Darren. If I go out drinking, I'll go out drinking with Darren. I've also got, you know, a couple of friends, that are, one's in Australia, Bob, who came, actually, you, you heard Bob on, on the radio once. 
you know, Kieran's now moved down to London, and I don't really see Kieran anymore. Like I say, Bob's in Australia, and I've got a couple of other friends. John, who's a stand-up comic, me and Kieran's taught about him. He's over in London as well. Diggy, my friend, who's like a hairdresser, he's actually married and is going to have kids, and they're on the other side of the town. And I actually, Diggy's not that far away, and I still keep in touch. But Darren has now taken a job. Oh, it's like a six-weeks contract. He's now in Brazil. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, and I'm now really just me by myself. Do you know what I mean? I used to go for a drink and that, and now I'm, this is it. This is me. You know, and I'll, I'll go to the club or the pub by myself. <laughs> it's like, I've got no friends. But then you think, that's not really true because, you know, everyone who's, and this is how, it's, it's again, it's another evolve in the kind of the world of friendship. And now, you know, when I think about it, I've got like so many friends that are online. And it's strange how you think, well, how can you, you know, if you, if you don't really get this thing, you know, my wife sometimes struggles with how I spend so much time on here, you know, like chatting away and talking away to everybody. It's hard for someone who doesn't come from the same kind of direction as I am with embracing this like Web 2.0. But I was thinking about it a couple of days ago and I have a rich, vast friendship now. You know, this online world is just amazing and everyone that's out there, I've discovered so many new friends. And even when I go out for a drink, you know, I'm on the internet sharing photographs on Twitter and, you know, and it's just like, it's quite bizarre. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I'm in my own little world and everyone who knows me on Starship Sober is there with us. And it's so easy now to, you know, bring all this together and just to, so when I do go out, everyone that I know is out there with us, you know, and it's technology is, is helping so much. And I just wonder what happens, where does it go? Do you know what I mean? And it's like you see, you got all them cliches of like singularity and everything like that. But is that the way it's going to go? Do you know what I mean? Are we just going to be uploaded and friends and you're just online basically all the time, you know, uploaded and that's it. Where is friendship going to go? It starts off at school and it's a strong bond and then through a process of changes, it really goes like, in my eyes now, full circle. And I'm, it's back to being like at school and being like having all my friends there together, but just sharing everything online. Any thoughts, please do drop me an email. So this week has been the release of Watchmen and... Like I say, it's one of those tombs that is sacred in graphic novel lovers and, you know, even readers like myself who don't really touch comics. It's one of them books that is law. You know, there's been so much speculation about this film coming out. Is it going to be any good? You know, there was a lot of worried fans. And I thought, you know, just coincide with it. We'll get a few views on Watchmen. So I thought I'd ask Rob, to be quite honest, our movie expert, just to give his little interpretation of the film, Rob... Did you enjoy it? Did you not, sir? For more than 20 years, people have been trying to turn the classic graphic novel Watchmen into a film. Regardless of the fact that at its massive page count, its multiple characters, its long, drawn-out, intricate storyline, it really, really, really defied the possibility of turning it into a two-hour-long story with a linear narrative that could be followed easily by anybody. It just wasn't very likely from the get-go. And over the years, plenty of people have tried. 
They've taken stabs at it, tried screenplays, done a few tests, played around with it. A few years ago, the idea that Terry Gilliam might take a shot at it really thrilled, well, a lot of people. I was one of them. For years, I thought that the best way to try this would be to try to turn the story into something like a miniseries, something maybe done for cable television, where you could make it five to six hours in length and watch it over the course of several nights, where the storylines would grow and change and you would get all those pieces of backstory necessary to understand the motivations of everyone involved. So, now we have a two-hour and 45-minute long version of the 12-issue miniseries, Watchmen, that you can run down to the multiplex and check out. And the question becomes, is it any good? Is it worth your time? Is it a good adaptation? And the answer to these questions, shockingly as far as I'm concerned, is, my God, yes. But somehow, the film fell into the hands of people who actually wanted to make it correctly. Some might even say they were a little too impressed with the source material, because, in all honesty, there are certain points where the fidelity is so striking that one almost believes that it would be possible to maybe make it less perfect an adaptation and maybe slightly a better film. But all those considerations are off to the side as far as I'm concerned, because I have to give an unadulterated thumbs up on this. As a matter of fact, on a scale of 1 to 10, I have to give it a 9. It's not completely perfect. It's not the best film I've ever seen. But man, they really hit one out of the park here. I mean, I was really impressed by the fact that they managed to keep the song cues. See, throughout the miniseries, Watchmen author Alan Moore placed song lyrics to uh, emphasize certain aspects of the storyline, to draw attention to certain details, and to kind of give an overarching Greek chorus of a sort to the actions that were happening in front of you. This was a wonderful, innovative thing that I'm sure was done before this in comic books, but this was the first time it was ever drawn attention to in such a strong way. And the filmmakers have kept this, and they've even found a way to make it work for them in a new way by using a specific song over the opening credits. And they also use this song and the opening credits to give you a lot of the backstory, a lot of the detail work that you can't really get otherwise, that you would almost have to read to get. So, this is just off, just off the bat, at the very beginning you see that they've done some incredible work. This is a complex and ambitious movie. It's going to take at least one or two more viewings to really absorb everything, which is also very much like its comic book source material. The greatest thing about this, and the thing that's probably going to be the most troubling for it later on, is the fact that Watchmen really is not a superhero film. Be honest, the best way to describe it would be to call it a science fiction story, an apocalyptic science fiction story as well. It's a noir-esque mystery thriller and a character-driven drama, and honestly, it just so happens to feature characters who occasionally wear weird costumes. It's also an alternate history story as well, because, as we learn as the movie goes on, the Vietnam War did not turn out the way it did in our reality. 
the intervention of a superpowered being changed the course of history. Changed it in such strong ways that Richard Nixon is still the president of the United States circa 1985, which is the time period in which this film takes place. This big detail will show you just how dark this story intends to go. And on that count, I think something probably should be said. This is an R-rated film. In America, R-rating means no one under 17 admitted without parent. But to be honest, there are some films, and Watchmen is one of them in my opinion, where children really should not be admitted with or without parents. When I saw the film, there were a number of people there with kids. It's as if they don't pay attention to the fact that this is a very adult film and that R rating is supposed to mean something. So if you're thinking of taking the little ones, trust me, this is not Spider-Man. This is not Iron Man. This is not a PG or a PG-13 film. This is R rated. Please keep that in mind and keep the little ones away from this. This is a dark, dark film. But nevertheless, do I like this movie? Yes, very good film. Is it a good adaptation? Yes, I only wish it were longer and were able to include a more fleshed out sense of all the things that were present in the original 12-issue miniseries. I think this is probably the best adaptation that we could have hoped for. And to be honest, I can't wait to see a longer cut of it when it debuts on DVD. That will be fantastic. So... As far as I'm concerned, good film. Don't Take the Kitties, a great new science fiction film. Thank you so much for that. You got an email off me the other day, and it was like so short notice. And I, th- I don't know if it was planned to see it that day, but it's like, Tony, I'll, I'll have to go today and see it then. And it was literally, actually, we got the email, and bless him, you had to go straight away and watch the film to get that review for us. Rod, thank you so much, sir. Let's have a little bit of poetry, I think. Today's poem is by Anne K. Schwader. I'll put a link on to Anne's site. She has had some work played on the Starship Sofa before. It is narrated by our good friend, Diane Severson. Diane, you're a true friend to me. Thank you so much for all the work you do. And I know at this moment while I'm recording this, you are busy, busy, busy recording some stories for me. So, Diane, thank you so much. Time trapped. We fled ourselves down corridors of time. The planet's ashes scattered in our wake believing like trapped rats that every crime might be erased by leaving. Last mistakes made transitory missteps, nothing more. Surely those dead minds whose research gave us this key to futures past, this secret door to sweet do-overland, meant it to save us. Yet here we stand as Rome falls to the hordes, as Moscow staggers and twin towers burn once more, forever. History affords no second path for those too slow to learn. Each pack of tyrants toppled bears our names. Each city mirrors ours, and all in flames. First published in Starline, 2007. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Anne K. Schwerer. Anne, thank you so much. Diane, thank you. 
Well, I think we'll get into another Watchman review. This one comes from none other than Jeremiah Talbot. He is a writer, photographer and web designer living in Colorado. He has recently taken on the managing editor role at Escape Pod, working with Mr. Steve Ely. He has also ended the run on his serial Twitter fiction, Future, about the life two years in the American future, which you can find on Twitter under the hashtag Future on the Thermotropes site. There will be a link over on front of the website to that site. Some of his science fiction photography is currently being featured on the Tor.com part of the Caption Contest Wastelands Anthology Giveaway. You can find Jeremiah Talbot at www.jeremiahtalbot.com. Look out for a story by Jeremiah coming soon on the Starship Sofa. Jeremiah, did you like Watchmen? Well, it's finally here. The holy grail of comic book movies has arrived on the screen, despite countless moments of studio meddling and ridiculous lawsuits. I viewed The Watchmen twice this weekend. Uh, The first viewing was held by my local comic book store and was essentially a private screening for their customers. The second time I watched the film, it was with a more general audience, and I was accompanied by my wife, who is not a comic book fan and has not read the original graphic novel, but she likes genre things and was very interested in seeing the film. But first let me talk about the visuals. We all knew from the trailers that Zack Snyder had almost obsessively recreated the look of the comic. I wasn't disappointed here, and in a lot of ways I think it was better in film than it was on the page. I only read The Watchmen for the first time about four years ago, and I've never been a big fan of that style of art, that old 1980s comic book feel. The imagery in the film felt much more alive to me. The acting was mostly well done, with the notable exception of the actress playing the role of the second Silk Spectre, Malin Ackerman. I'm afraid that Snyder misstepped when he cast this woman in the incredibly important role. Much of the emotional core of The Watchmen rests on the acting skills of the actors playing that role, and I never had the feeling that Ackerman was up to the task. However, whenever Jackie Earl Hartley was on the screen as Rorschach, any concerns about the acting quality melted away for me. Uh, Given some pretty bad dialogue to deal with, and I'll talk about that more in a bit, He really did a phenomenal job in conveying that barely held back from total insanity aspect of the character. Rorschach is frightening, uh, just the way he should be. The rest of the cast turned in good performances, at least as best as they could given Snyder's devotion to the source material. His dedication in preserving the comic book in its translation to the silver screen is commendable, except when it comes to dialogue. 300, and especially Sin City, suffered from this problem as well. Uh, The dialogue in graphic novels sometimes falls flat when spoken by a flesh-and-blood actor. Much of the original Silk Spectre's lines felt forced in particular. We geeks have been clamoring for true-to-the-source adaptations for a while now, and I'm left uncertain about how I feel about that demand, having seen what is arguably the most honest translation of any major geek franchise, uh, possibly matched by the Harry Potter movies. It's an uneven picture. At times it's breathtaking, and at other times it's somewhat laughable in its stiffness. The difference between my two viewings was very interesting. The first audience cheered to many of the favorite scenes and lines. They were respectful and rarely laughed at the awkward moments, even the ridiculously long sex scene above Archie. The second audience, made up of your more usual moviegoers, laughed at some of Rorschach's funny lines, but they also tittered nervously several times, especially at the sex scene. And when that bizarre cat thing appears at the end of the film, I could hear everyone around me whispering, What is that thing? Even my wife turned to me and wanted to know what it was. Its presence was jarring even to me, someone who had read the graphic novel. I couldn't help wonder if the countless thousands spent doing computer animation for that throwaway visual bone to the fans might have better been spent hiring a better actress to the role of the Silk Spectre. 
Fans being fans, some are likely to be disappointed that every panel of the comic is not presented somewhere in the film. No matter how good a film is, it'll probably never be as good as it was in their heads when they first read it as single issues in the late 1980s. But for this non-purist, despite the unevenness in places, and yes, despite the lack of the squid-based ending, I think the film is possibly the best version of Watchmen fans could ever hope for. I even doubt that adding extra minutes in the director's cut, sure to be released on DVD, will really improve the experience much for anyone but those purists. I worry about the question posed by the graphic novel. Who watches The Watchmen? Well, with the publicity campaign behind this one, it's likely to be quite a few people. The question that leads to for me is, who will enjoy The Watchmen? I worry that the answer will be comic book fans, but not many others. We'll see soon enough, I suppose. There you go. Thank you, Jeremiah Talbot. Again, the last minute. I, I noticed on Twitter, Jeremiah had been, he went to see Watchmen twice, and I thought, oh, there we go. Never miss a trick. So, got in touch with Jeremiah. Jeremiah, sir, thank you so much. So today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 35,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like Starship Sofa. So log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for your free audiobook. So my recommendation for a book this week is, and it's actually not science fiction, which is quite a, a shocked a departure for me, but it is. I am loving this book, and it just makes a smile, and it's one of those audiobooks that is just a pleasure to dip in and dip out of. You know, it's not a really, I wouldn't approach it as a full listen, but I'm certainly dipping in and out of this book and loving it. And it's called The Darwin Awards, and this is number five by Wendy Northcutt. I was listening to Leo Laporte on one of his shows, and he mentioned it, you know, and it kind of piped me interest. It's just about people who, for some reason or other, do a stupid thing and end up either killing themselves or certainly injuring themselves. And and it's just really the saying, the Darwin Awards is basically stepping outside of the gene pool, you know what I mean? You've left really the gene pool because you're that stupid, you know what I mean? And there's some of them that I have been crying, laughing at it. There was one, and they were actually English there, so hands up, yes, the English there. There was these four light lads who were actually on little push bikes, or I think they were probably about in the teenager age by the sound of it, playing dares, basically, a stupid game anyways, but they were riding up to the cliff face and breaking at the last possible moment before the, you know, the bikes kind of fell off over the cliff. That's the, <laughs> that was the intention. So they did it a couple of times and realised it was a little bit dangerous. You know, you're talking about a... I think this cliff was like a 200-foot drop. So they decided to all tie ropes round their waists and, you know, to a peg and peg the peg into the ground and off you go do it again. Just a little bit safety, which you would think is a good thing. <laughs> one of them, one of the bright sparks, decided, and everyone else was telling them that his wheels were making such a squeaky noise, he decided to oil them. So he oiled the actual wheel with... <laughs> engine oil and you know yes you can actually see pedaled as fast as he could hit the brakes <laughs> the edge of the cliff <laughs> didn't do bugger all and straight over the cliff and you think you know but safety is he had his rope only his rope was about 60 to 80 foot long he dropped that <laughs> distance broke his ribs and was lying there unconscious 
And well, at least the rope saved him. So you're thinking, what's this got to do with the kind of the gene pool? Why is this guy thick and what's happening to him? Why, why is it all going wrong? Well, thanks to his mates, <laughs> didn't they unpeg, untie the rope, get a hold of the rope, and were about to lift him up? But only one lad had a hold of the rope. He couldn't actually winch up his friend, had to let his friend go, who actually dropped to the sea and drowned in the sea. And it's it's all like that, you know what I mean? There was this lad who couldn't, for, for, for some strange reason, couldn't drink alcohol through his mouth. It was sore, something like that. So you can guess how, through another orifice, drank three bottles, of, it might have been vodka, Knocked himself out unconscious and died of alcohol poison by drinking alcohol through his jacksy. <laughs> and you've got to listen to this. Don't listen to it on the bus because you just end up like laughing and laughing and laughing. So yes, that is my little recommendation. So go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa slash sofa. Check that one out. It is the Darwin Awards, Wendy Northcutt. A fantastic little book. Back to Flash Fiction. And this one comes from Morgan Sterling. Morgan Sterling, who uses his middle name as non diploma of science fiction, grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, moving from the blurbs to the metropolis Paris and France. For a year before heading back to San Francisco, where he pursued undergraduate studies at San Francisco State. Since then, he has spent a decade in Paris, where he earned two master's degrees and taught various university classes. He has recently taken to writing science fiction in a way of putting off writing that damn doctoral dissertation he has been sitting on for the last five years. Who knows, maybe someday the thing will write itself. He now lives in Melbourne, Australia, his wife's hometown. While not writing, he enjoys backpacking and photography. He also reads for LibriVox.org and is currently podcasting a chapter-by-chapter reading of Robert E. Howard's pulp classic. It is also Morgan that is narrating his own story. So the Starship Sofa and Oral Delights is very proud to present The Explorers by Morgan Sterling Read by the author Speaking in public was like being in space again. Once you fought down the feeling you were going to puke, it was easy. Ernesto David Russell looked out over his audience of students and academics, a few of whom he knew from the history department, most of whom were strangers. But, like him, they were all participants in Lunar U's 10th Annual History of Human Space Exploration Conference. He cleared his throat, glanced slowly from left to right, just over the audience's head, and opened his mouth. The Russians, he began solemnly, really began it all. They had so many firsts when it came to space. They were the first to launch a satellite. The first to launch a dog. They were the first to launch a human. The first to successfully orbit the Earth. And the first to send a woman to space. But then again, we, and I speak for my fellow Americans out there, we made it to the moon, didn't we? And boy, did that show them. I mean, sure, we remember Sputnik and Gagarin, but not like Armstrong on the moon. The moon shot was the money shot of the space race. Of course, there are some firsts that don't make the conventional history books. He looked up and allowed a sly smile to cross his face. 
History books are not big on sex. What that says about us historians, I'm not sure. That drew titters and a few hearty chuckles from the crowd. Good. As he'd said, his fellow historians weren't always good on sex. Or, at it, for that matter, he suspected. But as long as they could laugh at themselves... He cleared his throat and continued. This time, the solemnity in his voice was carefully seasoned with a hint of humor. The Russians were also the first to have sex in space. And, just like with the first space race, they dropped the ball. Or should I say... He let the pause finish for him. I mean, just think. Before the orbital casinos and the pleasure hotels and space tourism, before the lunar colony, before the Mars outpost, just imagine. Only a handful of people had ever experienced weightlessness. And you know that people must have been wondering what it was like. And here, he carefully dropped his voice and leaned forward conspiratorially, as if to share a dirty joke with his audience. I mean, you know, to do it. And the Russians were in the perfect position to let them know. After all, the first space porno ever filmed was Russian. Really? I know, I know, you're thinking, wasn't that Debbie Does Deep Space? And you'd be right. Almost. That was the first professional porno ever filmed outside the confines of Mother Earth's gravitational embrace. The Russian film starred a mere cosmonaut, burly, jowled and mustachioed, and whose name I can't remember, along with an almost equally burly cosmonet, apparently doing the nasty in micro-G. I say, apparently, because the film was shot using a cheap Ukrainian 8mm movie camera before being transferred to a low-res videotape that circulated among private collectors for years. He paused. You must understand that this was in the days before ready internet access, high-res phones with digital video, and all the other flash gadgets today's kids expect. When it finally did make it to the small screen via broadband, it was denounced as a hoax by some, praised as avant-garde art by others. In either case, the film quality was so bad that many compared it to the famous, or infamous, Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot film. Digital enhancement, while doing nothing for either co-star's physical attributes, has established that the film was, to a high degree of probability, actually filmed aboard the Mir station, though debate still rages. In either case, there is a legend among space Xers that after seeing the movie, a Russian businessman came up with a plan to pay for the aging and decrepit orbital tuna can without the humiliating need to go and beg NASA or the Europeans for the money. His plan? Simple. At the time, the Ukraine's biggest export were stunningly gorgeous mail-order brides. Russian ladies were big business. The American and European porn industries couldn't get enough of these eastern beauties, and our man reasoned that it would be a simple matter to send a couple up to Mir for a bit of high-altitude hanky-panky, a la ballerinas in space starring Isle Spunganya and Ivana Gopalot. The cosmonauts were already moonlighting as actors for quality products such as toothpaste and long-life milk, so it couldn't hurt to market other eastern assets as well, could it? Of course, to a public jaded by such films as Debbie Does Mars, Orbital Maneuvers in the Dark, The Dark Side of Your Moon, Killer Asteroids, Deep Impactor, Probe, Schoolgirls from Mars 8, and, lest we forget our friends from the other side of the road, Buck Rogerer and the Pirates of Uranus, Spunky Space Cowboys, and Space Puffs, all this might seem like, well, like... history. The Mile High Club became the Twenty Mile High Club, and then it just stopped being a club. When you can do it on the moon, the only high you care about isn't altitude, is it? But imagine a world where the injunction to sit and spin had not become a practical reality, before the micro-G physics of liquids had not led to the practice of goldfishing, the money shot of the space tourism age, 
He looked up and made a gulping, goldfish-like motion with his lips. Imagine a world where the kind of orbital acrobatics we are accustomed to seeing in our adult entertainment simply hadn't even been dreamed of, at least not in your ordinary sort of dream anyway. No, this was visionary, and the Russians were so close. The first professional space porn film ever. Just imagine. I mean, NASA was still having trouble admitting that astronauts weren't as asexual as the jumpsuits of the shuttle era. But... Lack of vision and entrepreneurial spirit was what kept them from going the mile. It was like the moon all over. We may have been slow to pick up the ball, or in this case, plural, the balls, but we delivered the money shot. He paused, then continued. It was inevitable. Really, when the new spaceport opened in New Mexico, a stone's throw from the flesh pots of L.A. and Vegas, that the prize would go to the good old USA for putting the triple X in human space exploration. Thank you. There were titters from the audience, then rising applause, even a few cheers. He grinned, the butterflies in his stomach all but forgotten. He leaned forward into the mic once more and added, and who said history had to be boring? Morgan, what a great cheeky little story that is. Thank you so much, sir. Links on the site too, Morgan's. Don't forget, all copyright is Morgan Sterling. Next we have Amy H. Sturgis. Amy, just who is on your cards today? Hello, Sophonauts. Today, for our look back into genre history, I'd like to focus on an author whose life is at least as fascinating as her work, an author who has been almost completely lost to English reading audiences, but who certainly deserves to be remembered and enjoyed. She has been called the first professional author of Sweden, and her name is Emily Flygare Carlin. Carlin was born in a seacoast village in Sweden, the youngest daughter of a sea captain, on August 8, 1807. In 1853, in a note to her American readers, she described her home in these words. On the western coast of Sweden, among naked rocks and lofty mountains, and washed by the wild waves of the North Sea, is situated the small fishing village of Stromstad, renowned as the former home of the Vikings. Here I spent my youthful days under the careful guidance of affectionate parents, upright and industrious persons. Her childhood, in fact, seems rather idyllic. She absorbed the seafaring stories of local fishermen, and accompanied her father on trips along the coast. Some of the places she visited, in fact, became settings in her stories. Her happy-go-lucky days, however, ended when she was 20, when she was married to a man who was her senior by a number of years, whom she apparently did not love. She moved inland with him, away from her beloved coast. At the age of 25, she was already a widow, who had borne two children and buried one. It seemed like her life, in many respects, was already over. But then she met and fell in love with a young law student. The two declared that they were to be married, and it seemed like, in fact, her story might have a happy ending after all. Unfortunately, her life seemed destined to follow the pattern of one of the literary romantic tragedies of the time. Her fiancé died suddenly, leaving an unwed Emily pregnant with his child. 
Because of the social stigma of her situation, she traveled away from home and gave birth to a baby girl whom she left in the care of strangers. Years later, she would pursue a relationship with this girl, but they were never successfully reconciled. She found an outlet for her heartbreak in writing. In its own way, this is fascinating because she was not the kind of person who would naturally go to a literary career. At that time, the intellectual circles of Stockholm were populated by the economic elite, the wealthy, the well-bred, and she was just the uneducated girl from a fishing village. But her first novel, which was published in 1838, Waldemar Klein, which was translated into English as Julie, or Love and Duty, was such a success that her editor moved her to Stockholm so she could pursue her career. Shortly after she moved to Stockholm, she met and married a journalist, Johann Gabriel Carlin, and he ended up serving as her copy editor and proofreader for the rest of her manuscripts. He had the training that supplied the things she lacked, the final polish to dot all of her I's and cross her T's. So, while she made her name on her own, she found a practical way to make her manuscripts more publication-friendly via this collaboration. Between 1838 and 1852, she not only wrote two novels per year, but she became one of the highest-paid writers in Sweden, male or female. Her position led her to be involved in the suffrage movement and other calls for women's rights. She was a prominent figure and unique because she, in fact, made her living from her writing. Her writing career all but ended, however, when tragedy found her yet again. Beyond writing, the passion of her life was her son Edward, and she did everything she could to give him all the opportunities that she hadn't enjoyed when she was young. They traveled across the country together. She sent him to university, and after he graduated, she funded a year-long European tour for him. When he returned, however, he was badly ill, and he died on Christmas Eve in 1852. For six years, she didn't write a word, and she never really recovered from losing him. She had buried a husband, a fiancé, a daughter, and now a son. Fortunately for readers, and for Carlin as well, an influential newspaper editor in Stockholm eventually lured her from her self-imposed retirement with an offer tailor-made for her to write a new novel focusing on the coastal life of the everyday rural Swedish people, that is, her people. So she was able to relive all of the happiest moments of her childhood in writing this book, which became A Merchant House in the Archipelago, which was serialized in 1859. This became incredibly popular, and it raised her visibility once again, and in 1862, the Swedish Academy honored her with a gold medal for her role in elevating the Swedish language and culture. Not bad for a girl from such humble beginnings. She wrote a few more books, fiction and nonfiction. But then the death of her husband and collaborator and her own increasing blindness 
that eventually brought a permanent end to her career. When she died in Stockholm on February 5, 1892, she left behind not only dozens of successful books, but also three charitable funds, one for the assistance of teachers, which was in memory of her husband, one at her son's university in his memory, and one for poor fishermen and their widows in memory of her beloved father. The Cyclopedia of Female Biography in 1857 described her this way, Upon the whole, Mrs. Carlin appears to yield to few women of our day in original genius. Some of the passages have an approach to sublimity in the descriptions of nature and of moral suffering. I think we can figure out where the moral suffering part came from, considering her biography. But it's interesting to note the way she's described also for her descriptions of nature, not unlike how one might describe her contemporary, Mary Shelley. Now, at this point, you may be saying, this is all well and good, a sad life for Emily Carlin, but terrific accomplishments. What exactly does it have to do with genre literature? Well, never fear, I've got an answer for that. Her great masterpiece was The Magic Goblet, a novel published in three volumes in 1840 and 1841. It was wildly successful then, and it's also shown significant staying power, for Swedish reading audiences at least. Three separate editions of the book appeared in Sweden in the first half of the 20th century alone. Two separate English versions of the book came out in 1845. The American version was The Magic Goblet, or The Consecration of the Church of Hammerby, and the British version was The Magic Goblet, A Swedish Tale. You might say, hmm, Magic Goblet sounds like an epic fantasy. That's exactly what I thought before I read it, but in fact, it's not. The first significant contribution that this book makes is to the genre of horror. A lazy, quiet Swedish village brings in a Norwegian architect to build its new church. But when he arrives, he sets off this spiral of events that builds on old family secrets and shames. It's a story of intentional revenge and unintentional tragedy. You can get a sense of this in one of the key lines from the novel. One spark, however, yet glimmers beneath the ashes, which vengeance will fan into a flame to light by its clear blaze the villainy hid in darkness and condemn the secret transgressors. Cue the creepy organ music, right? What fascinates me so much is that she uses what at that time had already become very familiar and identifiable ingredients. Castle ruins, deformed and deranged villains, you even get a crazy hunchback, and he is crazy, and the dark sins of past generations coming back to wreak havoc on the young generations. But she does all of this in a way to tell a story that, at its core, is really a deeply personal narrative. Because, in a sense, the story is the tale of four women 
one of whom is already dead, three of whom are alive during the tale. And the way their lives have been manipulated, the way their choices have been taken away from them, the way that issues of pregnancy and marriage have become, in a sense, either traps or weapons to be used against them. You can see from her own personal story how much of herself she put into this novel. And so, like the best of speculative fiction, Carlin was really talking about her own day, its social ills, the problems that she wanted to be brought out into the light and discussed, and, at a fundamental level, the question of what it means to be human and what it means to love, those two things being, in some sense, the same. And it is clearly a deeply political work and an early feminist one. It's all the more impressive, then, that two of her most sympathetic, discerning, and noble characters in the book are men. The main hero, in the meantime, is the classic Byronic anti-hero. So, get this. When North American Review in 1848 ran its review of the Magic Goblet, it called it a wild phantasmagoria of unmixed and unaccountable evil. A review like that kind of makes you want to run out and read the book, doesn't it? But it's not exactly clear what bothered the reviewer more. The fact that the main hero engaged in some pretty nasty activities. The review goes on to say, This hero may well put to shame the worst of Bulwer's highwaymen, and it may be doubted if the vilest of his works has brought to our unguarded homes a more dangerous lesson than that which is taught through the whole book of this Swedish authoress. But there was also a concern about the fact that Carlin wrote the book with a sympathetic eye toward and realistic treatment of the issue of divorce, as well as that of unwed pregnancy. There is another reason why this book might have been called unaccountably evil, and that's more basic. Although the way I have described the book, because of its key social issues, makes it sound a bit like a calm domestic story. The Magic Goblet was anything but. This book had a huge body count. That's right, Emily Flieger Carlin didn't mind killing her characters and in tremendously nasty ways. And then putting their dead bodies on cold slabs and keeping them around for a while. Which leads me to another point about a contribution she made to genre literature. The Magic Goblet is a classic gothic work in every sense of the word but it provides a masterful example of why some scholars suggest that the Gothic was necessary for science fiction to develop. You can see in The Magic Goblet, the Gothic explique, the Gothic explained. Let me give you an example. The book starts out with the young architect coming to the village. Before she even meets him, one of our young heroines, on the anniversary of her mother's tragic death, takes down special goblets, drops and breaks one. And it seems that everything that's going to happen after this is because of the curse of this magic goblet that somehow has held everyone's fate in its power. But by the end of the book, we realize the goblet wasn't magic. And in fact, 
all of the terrible things that have happened come down specifically to human agency and to the designs and plots and schemes that have come from all too mortal actors. In The Gothic Explained, a book would create fantastic situations, and then by the end of the Gothic text, give the reasons, the rational, reasonable reasons, why these seemingly supernatural events occurred, thus paving the way for literary appeals to explanation and rationality, tales of ratiocination, scientific romances that would come with Poe, with Verne, with Wells, etc., So we can see really the birth of the genre in the way the Gothic was working itself out at the time. And the Magic Goblet is an absolutely beautifully crafted example of this, as well as a compelling story of love, hate, revenge, tragedy, and social concerns. And the odd crazy hunchback. I did mention the crazy hunchback, didn't I? In 2007, Valancourt Books brought out the first English edition of The Magic Goblet in well over a century. I will be upfront and admit that I was the editor, and I did the introduction and the annotations as well. So I am biased. But it was while I was working on it that I came to a greater appreciation for the artistry involved in the storytelling and its author's place as a contributor to the history of genre fiction. And now I've shared it with you. I hope you've enjoyed my discussion of the first professional Swedish author and the personal stories that fed her fiction. I look forward to talking to you more about the history of the genre. Amy just gets better and better. Thank you so much. Do pop over to Amy's site. Links again on everything on the front of the website. So we come to part two of the serial murders by... Kim Newman. And I'll let Gareth just take you away and what's happened up to now. When gorgeous model Delia Devine deals out salacious justice to her horse-hating jockey beau, it's a case of life-imitating art for Richard Jefferson, chief investigator of the Diogenes Club. Now Jefferson must team up with soap specialist Professor Barbara Curry, a woman as clever as she is beautiful to discover why Britain's top TV show has predicted a series of gruesome murders. When part one ended, our heroes were embarking on a tour of Odell Squires Studios, makers of The Barstows, Britain's most influential soap, along with mincing PR man Lionel Dilkies. Meanwhile, Vanessa, the Diogenes Club's comely female member, has been tasked with infiltrating the show. The Serial Murders by Kim Newman Part 2 Lionel took Richard and Barbara up to what looked like a Zeppelin hangar and touched a black plastic lozenge to a pad beside a regular-sized door which sprung open for thirty seconds to let them in, then slammed shut and refastened like an airlock. The PR man led them up a rickety staircase to an ill-lit nest of desks and couches where people were shouting at each other while talking on telephones to, presumably, other people elsewhere. Welcome to the bad vibe zone, said Lionel. Interesting expression, commented Richard. Came up with it on my own, love. 
Now, don't take this wrong, but walk this way. He flounced, deliberately, into a labyrinth of partitions, leading Richard and Barbara along a twisting path, hurrying them past perhaps interesting individuals in their own cubicles. We need more space, admitted Lionel. A.R.T. like to keep Odell Squire in a tiny box. Stops us getting too big for our boots. In theory. Guess what? Theory don't work. They don't make boots big enough for how ginormous this lot think they are. They came to an area where a small, bald, damp-cheeked, middle-aged man in a cheesecloth sarong sat cross-legged on a giant mauve cushion with applique sunflowers. The Buddha-like figure was surrounded by long-haired youths of both sexes who were waving long strips of yellow paper like Taoist prayers. On the strips were scrawled arcane symbols in Biro. This is a script conference, whispered Lionel. Hush, hush, genius at work. That's Mucus Squires. It's his fault. For creating the programme, asked Richard. For not throttling Mavis upstairs in his sleep when he had the chance. They used to be married, though that's not a picture anyone should have in their head, love. Richard looked again at Squires. The writer-producer would be happier in a bowler hat, collar and tie, carrying a rolled-up umbrella. The guru look was the only way he could get respect from his staff writers. For a moment, Richard thought the man was holding a blue security blanket, but it was a large handkerchief which he was using to mop his freely perspiring brow. Two girls with beehive hairdos, whose general look was ten years out of date, rather than the normal round here five, took shorthand dictation on big pads like courtroom stenographers. Squires was assembling a script by taking suggestions from the circle, rejecting a dozen for everyone he took. Whenever he let a line or bit of business through, the originator glowed with momentary pride, and the rest of the pack looked at him or her with undisguised hatred, even as they agreed that the contribution was a work of genius. The genius in question belonged to Marcus Squires for making the selection, not to any of the acolytes for chattering forth stream-of-consciousness material, tossing out notions to burn and die in the sunlight, in the hope that one or two might grow up to be concepts, then get a thick enough carapace to become actual ideas. Next, after the ad break, asked Squires. We've not seen Cousin Dachi Mari for two weeks, put in a girl with glasses that covered four-fifths of her face. His plots are still dangling. Uh-huh. Mavis won't have it. She's in a sulk with Mari, since he got that good notice in the Financial Times. He could have uh, an accident, pressed someone, seeing an opportunity. Squires shook his head. We still need CDM. It's bloody Sydney who got the review. Sydney Little plays Cousin Dodgy Mori, whispered Barbara. Could we, Darren? asked a smart-suited Pakistani man. Squires blotted droplets from his temples. We've used up our Darren this year with the bogus Brenda. To Darren is the practice of replacing an actor in a continuing role with another, said Barbara. It comes from the American sitcom Bewitched. The BB wasn't a full Darren, said the girl with glasses. 
That was a who. A who is a modified Darren, said Barbara. From Doctor Who. Barbara patted him on the shoulder. You're learning to speak TV. Good. A who is when you do a Darren, but you have an excuse, like the doctor regenerating from one star to another, or plastic surgery, which is what they did with the bogus Brenda, who returned, having had the face change she had previously only claimed to have had, intent on getting revenge on Mavis Barstow for cutting her inside man, Mavis's nephew Ben, out of the family business. You're a fan? No, I just paid attention in the last two weeks. Squires looked up and fixed them with watery eyes. Who are these people, Lionel? And do we pay them to mutter during script time? This is the, um, plumber. Lionel made all sorts of eye rolls and contortions. Squires squinted blankly. He's come about the, you know, thing we do not mention. The C word. The penny dropped, at least with Squires, who took another look at Richard. The writer-producer was in the loop on this investigation, but the rest of the pack were best kept in the dark. If this was where the ideas came from, this was the likely source of the problem. Fair enough, said Squires. Sit comfortably at the back and don't speak up unless you've got a better idea than any of these serfs, which, on their recent record, isn't unlikely. There were only large scatter cushions available. Richard settled on one, achieving perfect lotus. Barbara managed side saddle. Lionel leant against a wrought-iron lamppost that happened to have sprouted in the middle of the office and cocked his hip as if the fleet were in. Now, CDM is out until the moo cools down. Barbara mouthed the words so Richard could lip-read. M.U. Mavis upstairs. The moo. Besides, we've got other patches to water. Delia Delight is about to go to trial stuttered a fat fellow who wore a school cap with a prefect's tassel. Last month's story, porco, sneered Squires. You lose the cap. He snatched it away. But began porco. Squires waved the cap about by its tassel. Who wants the thinking cap this week? Come on, you fellows. Pitch in. There's all to play for. Yeroo, what about Ben's new bit? Lovely legs, said someone approving. That's right. The lovely, lovely legs. The bogus Brenda, of whom we just spoke, people. More formally, Miss Priscilla Hopkins, granddaughter of... Come on, anyone, it wasn't that long ago. I know you were all nappies when the series started. Come on. Blank looks all around. Barnaby Hopkins, said Barbara. Da Barstow's original partner, whom Davis cheated out of his share of the business. Squires nodded approval. Thank you, whoever you are. It goes to show we do better off with strangers off the street. I beg your pardon, madam, but I'm making a point. Then with you, bright new graduates and ashram dropouts. With my producer's hat on, I have to wonder why we pay you all so much. Faces fell in shame. Yes, Priscilla Hotpins. 
emphasised squires, away being Eliza Doolittled to extreme poshness, not to mention tending and caring for her remarkably glamorous gams. And now back for what? Revenge, suggested Glass's girl, tentative. One of your basic plot motors, yes. But what else? Is she cracking a bit, learning to love the enemy? Has Ben's crooked smile and Sans Gorm charm worked a spell on her? Who knows? I don't. But let's get them together a bit more and find out, okay? The business of putting a scene together seemed a lot like Cluedo. Colonel Mustard in the library with the poison. This was Priscilla in the Barstow boardroom with the suspender belt. About the first thing Richard had noticed about the northern Barstows was that every other scene involved sex. The writing pack got excited as they frothed up the seduction of Mavis's nephew. With the bogus Brenda back as a new face, a whole spiral of story possibilities fell into place. It was another Barstow's standard procedure. Over the years, especially since the bona fide Brenda was written out, several other women had been brought in as antagonists for Mavis, built up either as villains or martyrs, and eventually ejected in some cataclysmic plot event, such as the murder which had just removed Delia Delight from the screen. Richard wondered if these women tended to depart soon after the actresses started to get as much fan mail or column inches as June O'Dell. He tuned out what was being said and tried to get a feel for the room, for the way the meeting worked. Squires was in control, but barely. He tossed the prefect's cap to whoever was in favour at the moment, and other rituals established a tribal pecking order and ways to jostle for position, claim or forfeit advantage or be expelled from the light. At times, Squires was like a preacher, at others like an orchestra conductor. The stenos kept taking it down in shorthand, and yellow strips were waved, spindled, or shredded in the writer's fingers. The moo tells Ben that Priscilla is the bogus Brenda, that she has always known this, that, in fact, she was responsible for getting her out of jail and bringing her to bleeds with a new face, said Squires. Ben, stunned as usual, close in on Junie's number two expression, smug triumph. In with the oompa and custard music and we're done till Tuesday. And God bless us, everyone. Now scatter and make babies. He waved and the writers moved away. Porco's face was wet with tears. Glasses girl, who had proposed Mavis be behind the bogus Brenda's return, looked flushed under the prefect's cap, as if experiencing the aftershocks of the best orgasm of her life. Squires discarded the now-soaked handkerchief in a receptacle and slumped on his raised couch. Then he noticed Richard and Barbara were still in the circle. Not right, as love, explained Lionel. They don't vanish when you clap your hands. Squires looked at them again, as if this was all new to him. Richard realised the writer-producer's brain had to contain all the evolving totality of the northern Barstows. He was like a medium, a conduit for the voices of bleeds. Whatever was going on here was transmitted through the mind of Marcus Squires. Unlike some people Richard had dealt with, he did not have invisible, evil entities perched on his shoulder. He might well be mad, but it seemed that most folks in his business were. 
just so long as they don't rattle the moose cage. After lunch, Richard had taken the precaution of bringing a Fortnum's hamper for Barbara and himself, thus avoiding the ODS hostilities table. Lionel took them onto the studio floor, where the seduction scene discussed at the script meeting was already being rehearsed in front of bulky television cameras. Lionel told them the pages had been typed over the break. If a Steenogs couldn't read her own shorthand, she was empowered to make up whatever she thought would fit. It usually wasn't any worse than what came out of the writing pack. There was quite a bit of excitement at the entrance of lovely legs. Stagehands, camera assistants, makeup people and cast members not in this scene all crowded around to get a look. See, said Lionel, star is born. Lovely legs wore only a shorty bathrobe and stockings. She did indeed have lovely legs. A hot stage name. Lionel admitted. She's really called Victoria Plant. The alias had been Fred's idea. Vanessa was a plant, so she might as well be called one. That girl knows you, Barbara said to Richard perceptively. She looked over here, then away really fast. What's that, ducks? asked Lionel. Nothing that matters, said Richard. She's a very pretty girl. Just watch what happens when Mavis upstairs clocks her. She'll be out of that nighty and into a floor-length winsette with mud on her face and her hair and curlers for the next scene. It's always the way. Still, enjoy the view while it lasts, eh? Richard had an insight. You're not even slightly homosexual, are you, Lionel? Shush, love. Think of my position if talk like that gets out. For shame. You can't get a job in telly, P.R., unless you're bent as a twelve-bob note. Sides, I like the frocks. He pantomimed another wrist slap. Richard shook his head. Look, this really is how I talk, dearie. Can't help that. Blame round the house. Another victim of the media. When he'd first seen Barbara, Lionel hadn't been envying her blouse but trying to peer down it. If you need a proper puff for some reason, apply to Dudley Finn over there, a.k.a. Beefy Ben Barstow. Forget all those stories about him in nightclubs with models and pin-up girls. I planted them all, personally. When those long legs wrap around his middle, he's not going to enjoy this scene one bit. Dud the Dud and Geordie the security guard make a lovely couple. Oh, slap my wrist and call me Mabel. I've done it again, talking out of school. Richard had learned a valuable lesson. No one around here was who they pretended to be, and most of them weren't even the people they seemed to be behind the obvious pretense at being someone else again. The onion layers peeled off, and there were sour little cores in the middle. As it turned out, watching the Northern Barstows be made was even duller than watching it on television. Even the rapid pace of twice-a-week production meant an enormous amount of waiting around for things to happen, while tedious tasks were repeated ad infinitum. Barbara, of course, was wrapped, like a historian with a personal time machine, rubbernecking at the first read-through of Hamlet at the Globe, or the huddle of commanders around Alexander as he scratched out battle plans in the Assyrian dirt. He found a quiet space behind some flats, painted backdrops of bleeds which hung outside windows on several different sets, as if every home and workplace in the city had the same view, 
and let down his guard, extending mental feelers, opening himself to the ebb and flow of immeasurable energies. This could be dangerous, but he had to do a full psychic recce. It wasn't an exact science. The emotional turmoil around regular humans at the studio was complicated enough to blot out obvious traces of the supernatural. Many paraphenomena were overspill from ordinary people's heads anyway. No ghosts, demons, or extra-dimensional entities were required to whip up a mindstorm of maelstrom proportions. Maybe a little ritual, conscious or unconscious, to unlock the potential, but it could just be a crack in the skull, allowing boiling steam to jet into the ether. Of course, Hasselmere Studios were haunted. If you knew how to look, everywhere was haunted. Richard had already noticed three separate disincarnates on the premises, tattered flags planted long ago, incapable of doing harm in the immediate vicinity, let alone reaching across distances and forcing others to do their bidding. In an arc-light pool, he came across a faded wraith who had been a film actress in the 1920s, almost a star, when talking pictures came in and her mangle-wurzel accent disqualified her from costume siren roles. Pulled from a historic film, begun silent, but revamped as a talkie, losing the role of Lady Hamilton to a posher actress, she drowned herself in the studio tank, waterlogged crinolines floating like a giant lily among miniature vessels ready to refight the Battle of Trafalgar. All this he gathered from letting her flutter against his face, but the only name he could pick up for her was Emma, and he didn't know if it was hers or Lady Hamilton's. He tried to ask about the Barstow's curse, but Emma was too caught up in her own long-ago troubles to care. Typical suicide. She chattered in his skull, Mummerset still thick enough to render her wailing barely comprehensible. The only spectral revenge Emma might have wreaked would be on Al Johnston, and he had never shot a film at Hasselmere. Richard asked if any other presences were here, recent and ambitiously malevolent. It was often a profitable line of questioning, like a copper squeezing underworld informants. No joy. If anything floated around capable of hurt on that scale, Emma would have known at once what he was asking about. Communing with the ghost left his face damp and slightly oily. When he moved on, she scarcely noticed, and went back to exaggerated gestures no one else here could see. She wrung her hands like a caricature spook, but he guessed that was just silent picture acting style. On set, Vanessa was giving the hot and cold treatment to Dudley Finn. It was textbook, slap and kiss, come here but go away, wrapping around the little finger business. Richard saw Vanessa was enjoying herself as lovely legs, not so much the acting, but the pretending. As she made faces, she let the whirring wheels show, daring anyone to call her a fake. Barbara was watching critically. Having picked up the connection between Richard and Vanessa, she was looking for more clues. He should let the two clever women know they were on the same side, or else they'd waste time suspecting each other. He looked at the faces, watching from darker corners. Squires stood between the director, Gerard Loss, a toothbrush-moustached military type, and the floor manager, Jeanne Treese, an untidy blonde woman with a folder full of script pages and notes. 
Squires wore a stained flat cap that failed to match his guru threads. At the script conference, Squires had several times used the expression with my producer's hat on. And now, swallowing a bark of laughter, Richard realised there really was such a garment and had served an actual purpose in demarcating his functions on the show. A great many other people watched, most with reasons to be there, none with the mark of Cain obvious on their foreheads. Richard picked up many emotions, all within the usual range. Jealousy from Geordie the security guard, as Ben clinched with lovely legs. Boredom from seen-it-all grips and minders. Frustration from a cameraman with ambitions to art, shackled to an outdated camera with three lenses that could be revolved with all the ease and grace of rusty 19th-century agricultural equipment. Severe cramps from Jeanne Treese. Concern from a wardrobe assistant who knew there was only one dupe of Vanessa's top and that if what she was wearing got torn in the tussle, she'd have to match the rip on the back up. Quite a few people in the room idly thought of killing quite a few of the rest, but that too wasn't exactly unusual. So, how did the Barstows reach out and possess people? It was possible that someone here at the studio was a human lens, a focus for energies summoned in script conferences and unleashed during production, who could channel malignancies into the actual broadcast. A talent like that might slip by without disturbing a ghost, like a light which isn't switched on, but would flare as bright as a studio filament when in use, probably burning out quickly. Raw psychic ability, perhaps not even recognised by its possessor, amplified and sent out to every switched-on television set in the land. Even if people weren't dying, Richard would have been troubled by the concept. If there was a person behind this, they needed to be shut down. Richard dreaded to consider what might happen if the advertising industry discovered this possible psychic anomaly, and tried to replicate the process of affecting reality via cathode rays. There was a slap, a rip, and a clinch. Richard felt the wardrobe assistant's inner groan and the security guard's spasm of hate. There was no shortage of suspects. That's a wrap for the day, said Loss, though not before getting a nod of the producer's hat from Squires. The talent are released. The rest of you strike the boardroom and throw up. Squires whispered in the director's ear. Mavis's lounge for tomorrow. Squires clapped, and the orders were followed. Television was not a director's medium. Vanessa threw Richard a look, then slipped out with the other dismissed persons. Her co-star had a quiet, hissy row with Geordie. Lionel shrugged and angled his head, tossing off a tell-you-so flounce, sneaking a gander under his shades at Vanessa's departing legs. Richard was amused, but not yet ready to write off the P.R. as comedy relief. In this soap, anyone could be anything. No rule said killers couldn't be amusing. He stood by Barbara. Is it all you expected, or are you faintly disappointed? She smiled. You're sharp, but try not to be too clever. I'm interested in the Northern Bastos and what it means, in why it's popular, why so many people find it important. Whether it's, in objective terms, any good is beside the point.
So, these people aren't the new Dickens or Shakespeare. No, though Dickens and Shakespeare might have been the old, these people. Come back in a century, and we'll decide whether the Marcus Squire's method counts as art or not. Method? Crowd control is a method, Richard. Is he in control? Not completely. He knows that. You can tell. Juno Dell, who, you'll note, hasn't been around all day, has more say, if only negatively, in what goes out on the show. In the end, the audience has the conductor's baton. If they switch off a storyline, it gets dropped. If they tune in, it's extended. This is all about showing people what they want to see and telling them what they want to hear. Wonderful. Fifteen million suspects. Barbara laughed. Pretty lines taunt around her mouth and eyes. If it were an easy puzzle, it wouldn't be a Diogenes Club case. You pick up a lot. So do you. Tell me, is this place really haunted? Of course. Want to meet a ghost? She laughed again, then realised he meant it. Is there a ghost? Several. He led her to Emma's arc-light patch. The lamp was off, but she was still tethered to her spot. I don't see anything. I'm not surprised. Hold out your hand. He took her wrist, easing back filigree bracelets, and her sleeve, enjoying the warmth of her skin, and puppeteered her arm. She stretched her fingers, which slid into the ghost's wet dress. Feel that? he asked. Cold. Damp. She took her hand back, shivering, somewhere between fear and delight. A frisson. I've always wondered what that meant. It really was a frisson. Tell me, what should I see? You don't have to see anything. I can't see anything, though I have an image in my mind. Like a recording. Richard realised Emma was in black and white. She had been around before films were in colour. That's one type of ghost, he said. Empty, but going through the motions. A record stuck in a groove. This is a presence with a trace of personality, very faint. She probably won't last much longer. Then where will she go? Good question. Search me for an answer, though. We have to let some eternal mysteries stand. You know more than you're letting on. He really didn't want to answer that, but he had reasons other than shutting off this line of questioning for kissing Barbara Curry. She had reasons for kissing him back, but he didn't feel the need to pry. You two, watch out, or the fire marshal will bring a bucket of sand over you, shrilled Lionel. Come away, and exeunt studio left. Pardon me for mention it, but you're an unprofessional pair of ghost hunters. It's a wonder you can find so much as a tipsy pixie the way you carry on. Richard and Barbara held hands, fingers winding together. The studio was dark now, floor treacherous with cables and layers of sticky tape. Lionel led them towards the open door to the car park. As they stepped outside, Richard felt a crackle nearby, like a lightning strike. He flinched, and Barbara felt his involuntary clutch. She squeezed his hand and touched his lapel. Nothing serious, he said. She lifted aside his hair and whispered, You're such a poor liar. 
into his ear. They had two rooms at a guest house near the studio. As it happens, they only had use for one room. Richard decided the unnecessary expense wouldn't trouble the accounts of the Diogenes Club. After an, it's not just the precious metal, it's the workmanship, argument over a bill for silver bullets, his chits tended to get rubber-stamped without query. He let Barbara sleep on, primping a little at her early morning smile, and went down for his full English framed pictures of supporting players who'd stayed here while making forgotten films were stuck up on the dining-room wall. The landlady fussed a little, but lost interest when he told her he wasn't an actor. The third pot of tea was on the table, and he was well into toast and jam when Fred arrived. He'd come down from London in his old Norton and wore a leather jacket over his Fred Perry. The landlady frowned at his heavy boots, but became more indulgent when Richard introduced him as a stuntman who had worked on Where Eagles Dare. More toast arrived. Fred had new information. He was fairly hopping with it. Gov, this is so far off your beat that it's got to be a false trail, he said. But I've tripped over it more times than is likely, and in so many places I'd usually rule out coincidence. Barbara appeared, light blue chiffon scarf matching her top, tiny row of sequin buttons down the side of her navy skirt. Her hair was up again, fashioned into the shape of a seashell. She joined them at the breakfast table. Fred, quietly impressed, waited for an introduction. This is Professor Corey, Fred. Barbara, this is Fred Regent. He's a policeman, but don't hold it against him. Continue with your input, Fred. We keep no secrets from the Professor. Fred hesitated. Barbara signalled for the continental breakfast. Grapefruit juice, croissant, black coffee. I'm all ears, she announced, nipping at a croissant with white, even, freshly brushed teeth, whose imprint Richard suspected was still apparent on his shoulder. Input away. Fred cleared his throat with tea and talked. I've been calling in favours on the force and the cook grapevine. Asking about as requested, I started with Jamie the jockey, since he's our most recent case. Then I looked into Sir Joseph and Prince Ali, plus a few more we didn't think about, Queenie Tolliver and Buck D. Garrison. Richard furrowed his brow. Queenie Tolliver ran nightclubs in Manchester, put in Barbara. That's one way of putting it, said Fred. Very well, she was... What would you call her? A gang boss. The godmother, the press said in her obits, choked on a fishbone at her sixtieth birthday party, just when... I can guess, said Richard. The same thing happened on the northern Bastos to a character based on her. Lady Gulliver, cousin Dodgy Morris, backer and Mavis Bastos' deadly enemy last year said Barbara. Garrison I've never heard of, but there was a Texas tycoon called Chuck J. Gatling on the Barstows, drowned in a grain elevator just after he tried to buy up a controlling interest in Barstow and Company. Fred flipped his notebook. I was iffy about listing Garrison as a curse victim. He died just like Gatling, but on his own spread in Texas. He'd never visited Britain. 
He'd probably never heard there was a character like him on some English TV show, but he's where I first tripped over the thing. The thing, prompted Richard. The strange thing. Actually, the non-strange thing, Professor. We don't do regular police work. We look for the unbelievable. What happened to Buck D was all too believable. He annoyed some business rivals, and the FBI say he was it. Hit. I really must frown upon this Yankee slang, Frederick. Sorry, Gov. You know what I mean? Hit, assassinated, killed by a professional. High-priced, smooth, hard to catch, in, out, and dead. He was rubbed out by a torpedo, blurted Barbara. Don't look so ghast, Richard. I teach a course on Hollywood gangster cinema. Richard shrugged. I like her, said Fred. Can we keep her? Entirely her decision, said Richard. After much more of this, she may not want to keep us. Barbara sipped coffee, enigmatic but adorable. I put Garrison to one side and came back to the others. The thing is, Whisper has it that they were hit too. This was not what Richard expected. Jamie Applethwaite was in hot water with almost everyone he ever met, said Fred. He was under investigation for race-fixing, and rumour was that he was on the point of telling all. Which would have been inconvenient for certain followers of the turf. The sort of enthusiasts who'd have no scruple about laying out cold cash to put Jamie in a morgue drawer. Delia Devine is not a tarpaulin, said Richard. A torpedo, Gov. No, I'm not saying she is. I'm just saying some big crims are puffing cigars and bragging that they did for Jamie. Ditto Prince Ali, Queenie, and Sir Joe. The prince can't talk any more with his vocal cords slashed, which is dead convenient for his uncle, the king, who is not a big fan of Ali's international playboy act. Queenie's Mancunian empire is being carved up by her old competition, which mostly consists of her daughters. How leer. Manchester CRD say they hope the war of succession thins out the Erdebis. Unfortunately. What about Keats? He's the only one of the victims who had any prior connection with the people who make this show. He was on the board of amalgamated rediffusion. The more that comes up, the more the show looks like a complete blind alley. It's not just Sir Joe went missing, but his secretary. Between them, they had ten months' worth of work on the factory's regulation bill in their heads, which is all out the window and back to the drawing board now. That means very happy proprietors of unregulated factories. Guess what's being said about them? That they paid to get the job done. Fred snapped his fingers. Got it in one. Richard whistled and sat back to think. I reckon it's a smokescreen, said Fred. Our mystery, Murder to Order Limited, is twisting the bastos to put a spin on their business, keeping the fuzz off their case while advertising a service to potential clients. Jobs like Prince Ali, Queenie and Sir Joe do not come cheap. This is not an envelope full of fivers to a couple of washed-up boxes to do over a builder who put the bathroom taps in the wrong way. This is serious money for serious business. Richard waved his friend quiet. It won't do, he said. It's still too 
weird. You don't want to let it go, Guff, but if it's just killers with a gimmick, then this goes back to Inspector Bryce with surplus to requirements. I mean weird in the strictest sense, Fred. Not merely bizarre and freakish, but occult, concealing and supernatural. I'm tingling with an awareness of it. Don't you reckon the professor might have something to do with that? Cheek, said Barbara, smiling and sloshing Fred with a napkin. Very well, said Richard. Fred, hie thee back to town and share this with you and Price. Start the yard moving on this from the other end. Go after the putative clients of your Phantom Assassination Bureau. See if the urge to boast about getting away with it leads to indiscretion. What about you two? You'll continue the canoodling holiday. We'll stay here with the Bastos. There's something or someone we've not seen yet. Some big piece which will... Fill in the jigsaw. Richard's tea was cold. June O'Dell knew how to make an entrance. The company made an early start. Dudley Finn was pressed up against a wallpapered backdrop by a single camera. He held a phone to his ear, though the dangling cord didn't attach to anything. Jeanne Treese hoisted a large sheet of card, an idiot board, on which one side of a phone conversation was written in magic marker. Ben Barstow was getting news about Delia Delight. We're tying off plot ends, Lionel whispered to Richard as Finn took one of many breaks. The actor wasn't as good at reading off the card as he had been yesterday at instantly memorising his lines. Viewers have written in asking what happened after the murder, so Mucus whipped up this bit overnight to reveal all. It's how this show always goes. Big build-up over months and months, nation on the edges of the three-piece suites, a shattering sensational climax. Then we drop the whole thing and move on. Once your plot is over, there's no hanging around, no trial scene with an expensive courtroom set and guest actors in those ducky wigs, no twelve extras on the jury, just one side of a call. So, she's copped an insanity plea, eh? Fancy that? Well, never mind. You're telling me she's going to be locked up in a loony bin for the rest of her natural life? Fancy that? We'll remember Delia Delight for a long time in Bleeds. Like fork we will. That's all over, and we're on to something else. Makes your head spin. Finally, Finn got the speech down. As Lionel indicated, the actor had to repeat what had supposedly been said to him by the non-person on the line with interjected expressions of astonishment. It's the famous phantom phoner, said Barbara. Richard knew the show had a habit of cutting into the middle of telephone conversations without identifying the unseen party to get over plot developments while avoiding potentially costly scenes. Murray's boom-boom up spot has burned down to ground. In a mysterious fire to please say it might well be arson. Hey, I'm right astonished. Or to repeat the last week's bombshell for viewers who might have missed an episode. Brenda's up to duff by that coloured fellow who plays to drums. Well, I'll be blowed. At the end of the call, Finn had to hang up the phone out of frame. Since there was no cradle for the receiver, a stagehand stood by with a weird little gadget that made a click sound and was surely more expensive and harder to come by than an actual phone. 
Gerard Loss insisted Finn hasten over pauses where, logically, the phantom phoner should be speaking. Finn had an actory spat about believability, but was reminded which show this was, and agreed just to read the board. His last line, crammed close to the bottom of the card, was a cipher scrawl. Till BH to P, what BH? Richard was worried that he knew, instantly, what that was about. Every phantom phoner scene in the episodes he had watched concluded with Ben Barstow looking straight into the camera, shaking his head and musing. There'll be hell to pay when Mavis hears about this. Bloody hell! Loss called for quiet. Finn took a deep breath and began. Three sentences in, the big studio door slid noisily open, admitting blinding light and a cloud of Lalique. Outside the stage building was a red box which lit up the word recording. June O'Dell must have waited for it to go on before commanding her entourage to open the door and make way for the Queen of Northshire. Finn grimly carried on with the take. Loss chewed his moustache. Jeanne Treese hit herself over the head with the idiot board. Marcus Squires hopped too and danced attendance on his ex-wife. He had to negotiate a way past two tall men who flanked the star. They had mullet haircuts, sideburns like cheek pieces of Roman helmets, and had overdone their daily splash of fruit aftershave. Their knitted rainbow tank tops showed off muscular arms. In person, June O'Dell was tiny, though enormous hair took her height a little over five feet. She had hard, sharp, glittering eyes, and her skin was shinily tight across the cheekbones and under her chin. Richard had heard her described as a cross between Miss Piggy and Charles Manson, but she was more frail than he had expected. The tank-top twins might well be there to rush in and prop her up if a stiff wind blew. Ignored by everyone, including a dead camera, Dudley Finn finished his scene. Without the board, he was word-perfect. "'There'll be hell to pay when Mavis hears about this,' he said flatly. "'Bloody hell!' Jeanne Treese whipped the crew into shifting the cameras to the lounge set and getting it lit properly. Madame Moo is prepared to work today, said Lionel. Lesser morts have to strike while the icon is hot. What about the phantom phoner? asked Barbara. Lionel shrugged. Seems scrubberood. Not that many people wrote in. Delia Delight is in TV limbo now. Make up your own ending, love. Delia escapes from Broadmoor and comes back chained to an axe murderer. Then they chop up as many bastards as they can get to. Pitch it to Marcus, love. In a year or two, he'll do it. Folks are always coming back to Northshire to get their own back. I shouldn't be surprised if British Rail do a revenge special any day fair to bleeds. One of the twins handed Squires a thin script heavily scrawled on in what looked like pink neon. June pointed a long fingernail at a particular passage and tapped the paper. I see the star writes her own lines, observed Richard. Never touches them. The pack know how to write Mavis the way Junie likes her. No, she always scribbles over everyone else's sides. Loves to give the supporting artistes a hard time. She'd force them to run their lines backwards and on their heads if she could. Eventually she will. Knows all the tricks, that one. How to cut the heart out of someone else's scene. How to take it all away with a single nasty look. What to wear to blind the other actors. 
Of course, Mavis on the show is an evil, domineering cow, so Junie's approach might be method acting. Squires looked over June's suggested changes, agreeing with every one out of his mouth, appalled fury spitting out of his eyes. Loss had to chivy Finn onto the lounge set while jamming June's line changes to him. The actor didn't complain. Squires, who literally took off his producer's hat when talking with June, diplomatically made a few suggestions. The lights came up on Mavis Barstow's lounge, the most used Barstow's set. Its two walls had shaggy purple paper that matched the carpet. At least once an episode, the camera would overshoot while panning the action and afford glimpses of studio blackness and the odd crew member where the other walls ought to be. Inflatable plastic chairs leaked slowly around a glass and chrome coffee table loaded with mocked-up fictional glossy magazines. A drinks trolley held rattling bottles of cold tea and dyed water. On the northern barstows, no actual products were shown. That was saved for the commercial breaks. Everyone drank Funzino, Popsy Cola and Griddle's Ale. Mavis's mother's old mangle stood in a corner like an industrial art piece to remind her where she came from. She would often tell relatives at length about the way her mam flattened her hands in a washing accident and threw the whole family into the poorhouse when she were a lass. An idealised portrait of the very late Da Barstow in day-glow on velvet, cap on his head and a miner's pick over his shoulder had pride of place above a shaped fiberglass marble mantelpiece where his ashes supposedly sat in a silver urn to which many of Mavis's most vehement or nostalgic speeches were addressed. The cremains had once been kidnapped by cousin Dodgy Mari and held to ransom. Since their return, Mavis had often got close to the polished urn to talk to the departed, usually after one too many funzinos and the camera had to focus on her distorted, wobbly reflection as she reminisced about how much happier everyone was when they were dirt poor. Jeanne Treese stalked the set, putting odd little folded cards like placemakers in ashtrays on the magazines hanging out of Finn's blazer pocket around the mantel and under light fittings. When the floor manager had finished distributing the cards, she gave Dudley Finn a once-over, as if checking for dandruff, and nodded to Squires, who had signalled to Loss, who made a gun gesture at the twins, who lifted June O'Dell up by her arms, as if she were part of their circus acrobatic act. The actress was propped on two eight-inch blocks with wheels. One twin steadied her, while the other knelt and fixed clamps from the blocks to her calves. The Mavis Glide, exclaimed Barbara. That's how she does it, platform roller skates. While her undercarriage was checked and fiddled with, a makeup girl made last-minute adjustments to June's white mask. Then her pit crew stood back. Suddenly, with a girlish giggle, she set off at a wheeled stride and did a figure eight around the set, skirts billowing. Applause was mandatory, but Richard conceded that it was a good act. She lifted one heavy skate off the floor and rolled on elegantly, leg out like a ballerina, then twirled and came to a dead stop. She was next to Dudley Finn. Thanks to the platforms, June O'Dell was now taller than him. If a word of the rises leaks out, you'll be killed, Lionel told them. No question about it. 
the recording light went on again, and June and Finn, Mavis and Ben, went through a scene which had evolved from yesterday's script meeting. June floated about the set as she spoke, picking up phrases or single-word cues from the tiny cards Gian Treese had distributed, skating through speeches with the aid of these prompts. The scene built up to the revelation that Mavis knew all along that Priscilla was the bogus Brenda returned. Richard accepted the sad inevitability that he was now a follower of the Northern Barstows like everybody else in the country. He knew who all these people were and how they related to each other and suffered a nagging itchy need to know what they would get up to next. This must be what it was like to be a newly body-snatched vegetable duplicate and click in sync with the collective consciousness of the pod people. "'She's an old ghost, Ben!' said June, in a line Richard hadn't heard yesterday. "'There've been too many bloody old ghosts round hereabouts lately. Spectre horses, headless spooks, all manner of witchcraft and bogginess. I'm beginning to think this family's bloody haunted, and something should be done about it, or my name's not Mavis Bastow.' Ben weakly put in a line about what was to be done. Get me a bloody ghost hunter, said Mavis. Someone to put a stop to haunting, or else someone to haunting will put a stop to. June's face froze. Richard had assumed the effect was a camera trick, but she really did just stop still and stare at the lens for long seconds. Loss called cut, and June was applauded again. What was that about? Barbara asked Richard. The ghost hunter bit. I wouldn't say it came out of nowhere, he replied. I'm rather afraid we've been noticed. June, who had perspired through her pancake, was wheeled off the set by the tank-top twins and repaired by the makeup girl, who applied what looked like number two gloss from a bucket with a brush. Then June was trundled toward Richard and Barbara with squires hopping along in her wake. From her artificial height, June O'Dell looked Richard in the eye. So, you've come about the mystery. Her natural voice would have suited her to play Lady Bracknell if she could ever be persuaded to admit she was old enough. It was nasal, aristocratic, reedy, with that Anglo-Irish affectation known as West Brit. Richard wondered if she had ever met Lady Damaris Gideon. If so, Lady D would probably have come second in a peering down the nose with disdain contest. Richard had previously reckoned the MP a likely British champion in the event. The haunting, he prompted. Very topical. Must remain abreast of current events. It's part of the format. Keeps us all on our toes. Or, in my case, wheels. June tittered, a tiny hand over her mouth. She fluttered long, feathery eyelashes. Am I to have a writer tagging along as I work, taking notes on my ghost-hunting activities? None of our writers, I trust. You wouldn't want any of those oiks about. I don't understand why we have to have them. Some of us are quite capable of making it up as we go along. June has the utmost respect for our writing staff, put in Squires. She's being amusing. 
the poltergeist plot has been thoroughly worked out by trained professionals. June flicked a glance at her ex-husband, and he withered. Then she noticed Barbara. Professor Corey, how nice to see you again, Peachy. Barbara had not mentioned that she'd met June O'Dell. She nodded in acknowledgement of peachiness, but did not attempt a curtsy. This curse has become infinitely tiresome and makes our blessed calling far more difficult than it needs to be. We have a duty to our viewers. They depend on us to take them out of their drab, wretched lives for two brief half-hours a week. Half-hours of entertainment, of education, of magic. It's a terrible responsibility. Many say that the northern barstows are more real to them than their wives, husbands and children. And for some who live alone, the elderly and the loveless, we are the only family they have. It's for them that we do this, undertake the endless struggle of the business we call show. I trust you will bring your investigation to a swift and happy conclusion. Rid us of all ghosts, ghoulies, and ghastliness. You are, I understand, supported by taxpayer money. To an extent. Excellent. You are accountable, then. You will come to me tomorrow at tea-time and give a report of your progress. Richard kissed June's hand. Of course. Alone, she said, eyes swivelling to Barbara. He felt again the crackle he had experienced yesterday. This was a very powerful woman, perhaps a conduit for a higher, greedier power. He tried to let June's hand go, but she pinched his fingers for a moment, hanging on, then released him when she decided to. Now... I must rest. It's fearfully exhausting, you know, being Mavis. June pushed off and skated away, independent of the twins, making squires cringe. She did a circuit of the studio, whooshing through the shadowy areas, away from the brightly lit lounge. Richard watched her brush past Emma's cold, damp spot. There was a sound in his head, like a bubble being popped, and June sped back, puffed out a little, like a cat with a mouthful of feathers. She zoomed across the set toward the door, which the twins got open in time, and whizzed out into the car park. Richard walked towards Emma's spot. What happened? Barbara asked. Richard opened himself up, trying to find yesterday's presence. Emma was gone, completely there you go. Just picture Gareth in his bedroom doing those voices. <laughs> yes, Gareth, thank you so much. So we've had two movie reviews. Matthew Sanborn Smith, a great fan of the Watchmen comic. Did this hit the mark? When the Sci-Fi Channel produced their version of Dune, I remember writing to a friend that it did a lot of things better than the David Lynch version. It had more time to. Though I did like the look of Lynch's Dune. So would a third version by some godlike director somewhere in the future ever be able to nail it? No. Dune is Dune. If you want every little thing that made Dune wonderful, 
You'll never get it in a movie. You must return to the book. That's what the book's there for. Terry Gilliam has gone down in comic geek history as saying Watchmen is unfilmable. If you've read the book, you can understand that. The story is told in such a way that it can't be duplicated in any other medium. It was made to be that way. Since I heard Zack Snyder got a hold of Watchmen, I figured it would finally be made since his success with 300. And I also figured it would suck. I planned to skip it. That is, until I saw the first trailer. It got me worked up. I've been reading comics since the age of four, maybe even longer, but I can't remember and I absolutely devoured every comic I could get my hands on for the next 15 years. Watchmen hit during my high school years, and though I loved Alan Moore's Swamp Thing run, for some reason, I didn't buy Watchmen. Instead, my friend got it, and after the final issue came out, I borrowed the series from him. It hit more than all the right notes. It kicked me in the skull and revolutionized the comic book industry. I've reread it many times since, and it still draws me in as powerfully as ever. I pick it up just to casually browse through it, and I'm trapped for hours. When I saw the trailer, I got that same feeling. At that point, I thought, it can't be the book, but it'll be fun seeing how close it can get to the book. They had my ticket money. I enjoyed the hype machine and watched every single trailer and making of video without fear of the story being spoiled. I'm going to give you two perspectives on the film. Firstly, that of my former wife. For years, I wanted to share Watchmen with her, but she's not a reader. She does like superheroes and action movies, and I'm grateful for the movie if for no other reason than people like her can finally enjoy the story. She'd been traumatized by Sin City, so I warned her about this one, and she willingly participated. Even so, she stretched my shirt sleeve out of shape, shielding herself from the violence more than a couple of times. Later, when I asked her how she liked it, she told me it wasn't what she'd expected at all, that it was deep, and she was able to follow the story without a problem, even though it leapt back and forth through time in dozens of flashbacks. She really liked it. Now for me. So, come Saturday, ass in seat, the screen goes yellow. The fantastic opening credits looked almost like three-dimensional stills, stills that moved a little, and portrayed scenes mentioned in the book but never shown, and they were gorgeous. Now I knew things would have to be cut. They cut the tales of the Black Freighter story within the story. I read that they trimmed or entirely cut many minor character parts. I can put up with that knowing that no major studio will release a five-hour movie. But they changed things, and with every change I saw, I wanted to scream out, GAH! So many of the changes seemed unnecessary and bad. Some scenes didn't occur that would have heightened the impact of a later revelation. By the end of the movie, I understood why some changes had been made, but I still didn't like it. I was never a hardcore Lord of the Rings fan, but I'd read the books before their respective movies, and I understood the changes there. But now, seeing Watchmen, I understood all those hardcore bitching Lord of the Rings fans who must have squirmed in their seats as I squirmed in mine. Too many problems. And come on, it's not like there could be a change that would improve on Alan Moore's story. Film kept rolling and I began to realize something. My heart beat faster. The violence, more gruesome and visceral than in the book, made a real impact. I twitched during the fights. I felt excitement reliving favorite scenes, and I felt twinges of suspense in some places. This from a guy who knew how everything turned out. Then it happened. The recitation of my favorite line in all of English literature, and it came off better than the book. In the book, psychiatrist Malcolm Long merely quotes what the character Rorschach says in his notes after the fact. In the movie, we get to see Rorschach say the words himself. The sociopathic crime fighter finds himself in prison, surrounded by old enemies that want him dead. In one brief run-in with a knife-wielding convict, Rorschach burns him horribly before the guards are on him and then Rorschach says it to the whole of the prison population. None of you understand. I'm not locked up in here with you. You're locked up in here with me. 
And folks, let me tell you, I honestly felt a shiver radiate from the core of my being out to all my rough edges. I had achieved the much-fabled nerdgasm. At that point, I knew that I loved this movie. Yes, some of the acting was just plain bad, but I agree with most reviews that I've read and that Jackie Earl Haley and Jeffrey Dean Morgan own the screen while they're on it. The ending, different from the books, made me cringe some more, but my body had sold me out long before. It's not the book, and if you haven't read the book, by all means go out and read it. As with Dune, only the book can be the book, but this movie rocks. There you go, Matt. Thank you so much. Yes, exactly. When that Rorschach says those words, the hairs on the back of your neck just stand up. It was actually because of these four reviews, I took myself off last night to see it. Like I say, I was seeing lots of reviews that weren't very good, but if you're a fan, do you know what I mean? And fantastic. So we'll jump into new titles now, and there is a rather a number. Actually, on this desk now, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven new titles. I don't think I'll get through all of them, because actually one of them, which is actually, seems all right, to be quite honest, and it's going to be hitting, you know, good publishers, getting the timing right. It's called Twisted Metal by Tony Ballantyne. I'll actually come back to this one, because it doesn't come out until May the 1st, 2009. But it's all kind of... They're getting it on the shelves just when the new Terminator film is coming out and, you know, just when the kind of the Transformers new film's coming. So, and it's called Twisted Metal. So, and it's like a kind of robot-y looking Terminator, actually, on, on the front of the cover. So, but I'll get to that one, actually. I get a little bit nearer the 1st of May, to be quite honest. But that one is actually looking great and great cover on it as well. But so look out for that when I mention Tony Ballantyne again, Twisted Metal. But really, the first one I want to mention is actually Asimov's science fiction. The April-May 2009 double bill came through my door the other day. And I'm subscribed to the two-year package with Asimov. Mummy got it for me. Yes, Mummy, could you buy me that? And I just love it when it comes through because it's one of them kind of comfort magazines. You know what I mean? It's like, let's see, 400th issue. You know, and there's two reasons why I want to kind of pick it. One is... It's four hundred, you know. It's four hundred shots. It's had, you know what I mean. It's just been going great guns. And in this issue, you know, just some big writers there: Brian Stapleford, Michael Swanick, Elaine Gunn, Nancy Cress, Robert Reed, Kate Wilhelm, Christine Catherine Rush. It's just, you know what I mean. And it's like I say, it's a double bill, and it's coming in at it's nearly two hundred pages. So basically, it's a book, and. On the co- seven ninety nine on the cover, so and I don't know what actually if that gets to like translates to off the top of my head English money, but inside it, you know, like you see, them writers, the Great Armada, Brian Stapleford, that's a novella. Another novella is Christine Catherine Rush, The Spires of Denon. Novelettes, you have Armies of I think it's Elfland, Elaine Gunn and Michael Swanick, The Wind Blowing in the Tide, Damien Broderick. Short stories. True fame, Robert Reed, An Ordinary Day with Jason, Kate Wilhelm, Chris Beckett comes down with Atomic Truth, Jack Skillinstead, we've got some of his stories coming soon as well, Human Day, Deborah Coates, Cowgirls in Space, you've got Nancy Cress story in there, Pori is in there, Jeffrey A. Landis, Peter Roberts, P.M.F. Johnson, and then you've got like the departments, which is always actually the ones I read first. You know, before I even tackle the stories, I'll always go to you know reading the departments. The editorial, it's Sheila Williams, 
the, the editorial is called 400, and she kind of delves into the editorial. I'll mention that a little bit later on. And you've got Robert Silverberg's reflections, and that's always great. You know what I mean? The whole steadfast Robert Silverberg there, fantastic. I always read them. Norman Spinrad's got his books, What Killed Thomas Dish, his kind of book reviews. And there's the, at the very back, SF Conventional Calendar by Erwin S. Strauss. But the editorial, let me just take you to the editorial by Sheila Williams. And, you know, he's proud as punch there. And I'll, I'll take your eyes or your ears down to the final paragraph of this. You know, and like I say, a few thousand people get a hold of this. And Sheila says, we're hitting our prime with terrific stories and new ideas. While most of you read Asimov's paper editions, sales of our electronic editions are growing. We're doing well at fictionwise.com. And the Kindle editions of Asimov's are selling briskly over at Amazon.com. New to our own website, Asimov's.com, is a monthly movie review. Also at our website, you'll find links to podcasts of some of your favourite Asimov stories. These podcasts are courtesy of StarshipSofa.com, the audio science fiction magazine. I'm sure you'll find lots of exciting new stories and innovations in the 600 and 6,000 issues that lie ahead. Isn't that nice? <laughs> oh, that's fantastic, man. Come on. Keeping that little doll. And actually, I got mentioned, James Patrick Kelly mentioned Starship Sofa as well, so twice... You know, fantastic. So, yeah, issue 400, Asimov Science Fiction, the April-May edition. And the actual, the cover is, you've got two kind of, I'll call them probably explorers, they've got the back to it, and they're kind of standing on this crag, and it's a male and female, and it looks like the female's got like a, a bunch of rope as if they're kind of climbing up some sort of structure. But in the distance, there's these massive kind of like, they look like almost like sand tubes with like holes in them, and they may be made of wood. It's hard to tell. Wood or you know, but these kind of giant, almost straw-looking structures crisscrossing in front, like a big kind of weave mess. I don't mean mess in a, <laughs> a negative way. Some sort of giant web, you know, where they've got to somehow get through. So there you go. Asimov's 400th edition. A very special one. Next we have a book by Andy Seacombe, looking for Mr. Piggywig. And I took a photograph, if you follow us on Twitter, I took a photograph of like a new releases that came in for a while. And this was one of them. And I forget, I think it might have been expat Paul said, what's, you know, because you just could actually see the kind of line, the row of books I had. And it was just like, looking for Mr. Piggywig, what on earth's that? But he has like the front cover. It's basically, it's got, it looks like a kind of, a, a bit of a, like a Marilyn Monroe image of a, of a girl and actually in that kind of a genie if you can picture that like a genie coming out of like a, a smoking man's pipe you know like one of those tobacco pipes so there's like a, a genie you know the clouds at the bottom and then it kind of turns into Marilyn Monroe at the top coming from this pipe and the tagline is being a private eye is not what it used to be I'll give you a little blurb on the back it's 20 years after the new battle of Britain and rationing is still in force Meanwhile, because of rampant global warming, a massive tax has been imposed on the carbon-based fuels. Now, with aviation fuel costing more than vintage champagne, commercial jets can no longer afford to ply the world's airways, and their place has been taken by giant eco-friendly dirigibles. Our hero Jack Lindsay is a private investigator of the old school, hard-nosed, hard-boiled and hard-drinking. If he has a weakness, apart from his fondness for Garibaldi biscuits... It's for women with a sob story, and one has just walked into his office and into his life. 
Marion is purportedly looking for her husband, though Jack suspects she's not telling him the whole story. By digging a little deeper, he finds himself increasingly embroiled in a worldwide criminal conspiracy involving gun smuggling, political assassination and a chain of burger outlets. And soon Jack's got a lot more to worry about than he's just his local shortage of Garibaldi's. Actually, Andy Seagum is one of the sons of, I don't know how many children you had, but um, Harry Seagum? Andy Seagum, yeah. And apparently there was like a, a news, um, like a, a press release that came with this book and it said that I think while he was actually writing this, he discovered he had throat cancer or cancer or something, you know, like a kind of cancer. I think he had to kind of put it down and, you know, hopefully get over his recover from that hideous illness and then pick this book back up again. So hopefully everything's fine with Andy. But like I say, in this press release, he said it was actually Andy Seacombe's one of Harry Seacombe's sons. And he's also wrote Limbo, Limbo 2, The Last House in the Galaxy and Endgame. This is by Macmillan and it is priced at $7.99. It's actually like a, a nice size paperback. You know, it's bigger than the average paperback. It probably looks like kind of trade paperback size, but for a nice price as well. Kicks in at around 350 pages. So there you go. Looking for Mr. Piggywig by Andy Seacombe. Macmillan Publishers, $7.99. The next one is Walter John Williams, sci-fi legend. His book is This Is Not A Game, tagline, You Don't Get A Second Life. I'll give you a little, we've got a story by Walter John Williams coming soon as well. When I say coming soon, you know, they're in the queue, you know. Walter John Williams has been nominated repeatedly for every major science fiction award, including Hugo and Nebula Award nominations for his novel City of Fire. His most recent books are The Sundering, Praxis, Destiny's Way and The Rift. He lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico with his wife. So this this is what it says on the back. Once upon a time, there were four of them, and though each was good at a number of things, all of them were very good at games. Dagmar is a game designer trapped in Jakarta in the middle of a revolution. The city is tearing itself around her and she needs to get out. Her boss, Charlie, has his own problems. 4.3 billion of them, to be precise, hidden in an offshore account. Austin is the businessman. He's the one with the plan and the one to keep the geeks in line. BJ was there from the start, but while Charlie's star rose, BJ sank into the depths of customer service. He pads his hours at the call centre, slaying online orcs, stealing your loot and selling it to the internet. But when one of them is gunned down in the parking lot, the survivors become players in a very different kind of game. Caught between dangerous world of Russian mafia and international finance, they must draw on their resources not least millions of online gamers to track down the killer. In this near-future thriller, Walter John Williams weaves a pulse-pounding tale of intrigue, murder and games that are all played for the highest stakes of all. Quite, actually, that is very, very promising read for me, that one. So, yes, Orbit Books, eleven ninety-nine. The cover is... <laughs> the cover actually is not... For me, is not that striking... Plain, like plain silver, which is kind of big black bold font on it, saying this is not a game. And half of that font is in like kind of very pixelated, as if it's kind of you know you see it on kind of computer screens and everything like that. And then underneath the word game, there's like in a, a pixelated body of someone with a blood round the head. So yes, Walter John Williams, this is not a game. Next up is a little novel there by Book Three of the Twins of Petipier. Anne McCaffrey and Elizabeth Ann Scarborough, Deluge. 
in the powers that be, power lines and power play, Anne McCaffrey and Elizabeth Ann Scarborough told the story of a sentinel planet, Petabir. Now they have returned to Petabir and introduced the reader to Rowan and Muriel, twins who can transform into seals and converse telepathically with the creatures of Petabir. Rowan and Muriel have left Petabir on a mission to help rescue their friend, Marmy, who has been falsely arrested on the orders of a corrupt colonel. However, they end up being imprisoned themselves and taken to Gwynedd Incarceration Connolly, and there they try to evade the clutches of their old adversary, Dr. Mabu, an unscrupulous scientist who wants to study their unusual shape-changing ability and doesn't care how much pain her experiments cause them. Meanwhile, the powerful and vivacious company is making another attempt to take over the world of Petabir for its resources, and the twins' parents, Yana and Sean, along with the entire planet, must fight to survive. Publishers Weekly, fast-paced adventure, bookless says, exciting, generously laced with humour. Published by Bantam Press, comes out 12th of March, 699. Praise actually for the whole Petabir series. The characters and their interactions are so well realised as to utterly charm readers. Furthermore, to the Celtic and Inuit lore that informed the first trilogy, McCaffrey and Scarborough now add elements to the mythology and lore of Earth's South Sea Islands. That was by Booklist. I mean, we all know Anne McCaffrey, but a little. The Hugo award-winning author of best-selling Dragon Riders of Pern novels. It's one of science fiction's most popular authors. She lives in a house in her own design in the Dragonhold Underhill in the country Wicklow Island. Visit the author's website, annemccaffrey.net. Elizabeth Ann Scarborough, winner of the Nebula Award for a novel, The Healer's War, is the author of numerous fantasy novels. She co-authored eight other novels with Anne McCaffrey. She lives on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State. So there you go, Anne McCaffrey, Elizabeth Ann Scarborough, Deluge, the third and final novel of the Twins of Petabir, 6.99, 12th of March. Last one, I think, and last one is the big one. I think this is going to be, I mean, Asimov's is like the nice read where everyone's got to kind of get Asimov's, but I think Michael Colby's Seeds of Earth is the one that's kind of, uh, the one, you know, the book of the week, should I say, the book of the month, Seeds of Earth. Ian M. Banks says, proper galaxy-spanning space opera with lots of weird aliens, secret ancient technologies and mysterious hyper-weapons. A worthy addition to the genre. I got an uncorrected like, book proof of this a while ago, do you know what I mean? And read it and loved it. And then it was funny because I was in the middle of reading it when I went to France and talking to Hal Duncan, and Hal Duncan said, if you remember the interview I did with Hal Duncan, he said there was a group of kind of the Scottish writers, well, Michael, you know, and the one, the kind of one day they're going to be get their books on the shelves, you know, and then the next time they go to the kind of convention. Well, Michael Kobe was one of them guys that were in that kind of little circle of Scottish writers, you know what I mean? And like, see, I don't know what Scotland's doing with the water or anything like that, but there is some cracking writers out there for science fiction. Michael Kobe is one of them. I'll give you a heads up on the back. First contact was not supposed to be like this. The first intelligent species to encounter mankind attacked without warning and swarmed locust-like through the solar system. Merciless, relentless, unstoppable. With the little hope of halting the savage invasion, Earth's last desperate roll of the dice was to send out three colony ships, seeds of Earth, to different parts of the galaxy. Earth may perish, but the human race would live on somewhere. More than a century later, the human colony of the planet Dorin has established a new world for the humanity and forged a peaceful relationship with the planet's indigenous race, the scholarly Uvovo, 
but they are secrets buried beneath the surface of Doran's forest moon, secrets that go back to an apocalyptic battle fought between ancient forerunner races of the dawn of galactic civilization. Life is about to change for the last children of Earth, as surprises spring from below and above. How will the Dorian colonists react when all they have worked for is overturned at a stroke? And what choices will the Uvavu make when their true nature is revealed and the skies go dark with enemies? Seeds of Earth are the first volume of Michael Kobe's Humanity's Fire sequence, a multi-layered 21st century take on the classic tropes of space opera by a bold new voice of British science fiction. £10 as well, and like I say, a chunky book this one comes in at 400, nearly 500 pages. The font of Seeds of Earth is like, it's kind of blurred in the background, but like the Seeds of Earth stands flush from it, it looks really good, and it's superimposed on like this big planet in the background, and then there's these kind of three ships out there, and there's like a little moon in the background. I think if you go into any bookshop now, this is kind of one of like the big hitters out there. You'll see this book as well, so look out for that. That's my pick of the week, Seeds of Earth by Michael Cobley. So that is new titles for this week. I'll run through them again. Again, Seeds of Earth, Michael Cobley, Anne McCaffrey, Elizabeth, and Scarborough Deluge. We have Walter John Williams there, This Is Not A Game. Looking for Mr. Piggywig, Andy Seacom, and finally, Asimov's 400th edition. There you go. That is your choices. Thank you very much. Well, this is the final instalment on the Watchmen movie review. This is by Scott Grandison, one half of Comic Book Outsiders. If you're interested in Comic Book Outsiders, it looks at the world of independent comics, movies, and TV that exist outside of the mainstream. Each episode, Scott, together with Steve, discuss some of the exciting diversity that exists outside of normal superhero comics. Crime, Viking, sci-fi, horror, autobiographical and journalistic comics have all been covered and more. So join them over at Comic Book Outsiders at comicbookoutsiders.libson.com And I've been talking to Scott and we're trying to work out where Scott and Steve I'm going to come over to the Starship Sova, fingers crossed everything works out fine, and do a monthly comic book graphic novel review. So I'm very pleased to announce that. Looking forward to it immensely. So Scott, did you like it, sir? When I first heard that after years of aborted attempts, they were finally going to be making a movie version of Watchmen, not only one of the greatest comic books of all time, but one of the greatest works in English literature full stop. My reaction was probably the same as Alan Moore's. In other words, complete indifference. I no longer get into a nerd rage when some money-hungry megacorporation does a hatchet job on one of my favourite genre pieces. I just don't bother seeing them. And this was how I, along with many of my friends, initially reacted to the news about the movie. Then, on July the 18th, 2008, the first trailer for the movie was posted to YouTube, and it looked, well, it looked perfect. I then witnessed the biggest internet forum vault fast I've ever seen. From that moment on, people were excited beyond belief. Could they really have done it? Could Zack Snyder have filmed the movie said everyone said was unfilmable? Well, on March the 6th, 2009, I got to find out. Set in an alternate 1985 America, where Richard Nixon is in his fifth term of office as US President, 
and where superheroes were once part of the fabric of society, but now a little more than a distant memory after the passing of the Keen Act, banning masked vigilantes. Both the comic book and the movie start with the murder of Edward Morgan Blake, previously known as the comedian, and the questions are raised, who killed the comedian, and is someone going around with a vendetta against superheroes in general? These questions serve to reunite some of the old heroes, mostly now middle-aged. The Batman-like Night Owl, played by Patrick Wilson, most recently seen pitting his wits against Samuel L. Jackson in Lakeview Terrace. The swift genius Ozymandias, played by Matthew Good. The deeply troubled, yet highly principled Rorschach, played by Jackie Earl Halley. The sexy yet violent Silk Spectre, played by Malin Ackerman. And finally, the most powerful superhero of them all, the almost godlike Dr. Manhattan, played by a CGI naked Billy Crudup, whose genre fans will most likely recognise from Mission Impossible 3, Big Fish, and Sleepers. The movie stays faithful to the comic book, which includes bloody violence, frequent nudity, and sometimes violent sexuality. Parts which were changed by the scriptwriter David Hayter's treatment, who gaming fans will know as the English-speaking voice of Solid Snake in the Metal Gear Solid games, have been changed with good motivation whilst remaining true to the spirit of the comic. I unreservedly love this movie. From the opening credits, which are some of the coolest credits I've ever seen, to the very, very last scene, I was spellbound. Some of the time I was thinking, I can't believe they managed to translate the Watchmen to scream. Most of the time, I wasn't thinking of the comic book at all and was captivated by the experience, as if I was seeing the story unfold for the first time, even being surprised by some of its twists that, in reality, I was very familiar with. The movie doesn't just look like Watchmen. Much more importantly, it feels like Watchmen. In exactly the same way, the story may follow a murder, but that isn't what it's about. This is a movie about power and the idea of the hero manifest within society. This is a plea for the end of heroes and taking responsibility for ourselves. It asks the question, given great power and responsibility, how could you not act unilaterally and amorally? Watchmen isn't an adult film because of its sex and violence. Watchmen is an adult film because it's deep. The questions it asks are more relevant now than over 20 years ago when the comic was released. The title Watchmen refers to a line written by the Roman satirist Juvenal who asked the question, who watches the Watchmen? With a movie this great, not to mention important, in cinemas at the moment, I hope the answer to that will be you. There you go. Don't forget, pop over to Comic Book Outsiders or listen out as they come over to the Starship Sova and do a little monthly segment. So that is Oral Delights, show number 69, Put to Bed. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it's been okay. And I hope it hasn't been too long away. We didn't come out last week because it was just, there's a lot going on. And listen out for news as well of nebula awards there is a lot going on within nebula awards starship sofa is involved with that as well it's my intention to get all seven stories that are up for best short story in the nebulas and put them out all in one day yes a feat that is sometimes i'm wishing i never took it on but i'm not going to say a date when this is going to happen because i want to get me keep me borders open but Within the end of March, beginning of April, somewhere around there, Starship Sofa is going to put out every one of the stories that are up for 
best short story in this year's Nebula Awards. And we've got some amazing narrators, so do look out for that. Like I say, it's going to come out all one day, one after the other. I don't think this way has been done before, but I'm certainly looking forward to it. And, you know, fingers crossed, the old ship can manage to do it. So, join me next week. I would just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Story Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.